Amen. We praise God for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness that has freely ours by faith and not by any work of our own. And it's in that that we continue in worship this morning, reading from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, as Paul continues proclaiming the glory of the gospel to us. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's God's word for his people. You may be seated. And let's pray once again as we turn to God's word and ask for his help to see it clearly and to behold the glory of Jesus. And so, Father, that's what we ask, that you would give us eyes to see the glory of our Savior, ears that would hear you call to us, mouths that would be fed by your living word, feet that would then follow our Lord into this week so that we might proclaim his glories to our neighbors and nations around us. We pray this day that you would shape us more and more into the image of your Son, and that we might live out more and more the sonship we have in him, we pray. Amen. Did you ever get into a car with one of your friends, and they ask, what's the plan? And can you remember a time in your life when you could say, I don't have one. <laughs> let's, just see where, let's just see where the road takes us. Now that could be, or that could never be said of some of you. I know you too well. You always have a plan. Even if you have nothing to do, you open Microsoft Excel and schedule out your nothing to do time. You're like at 11.47 a.m., we're gonna do nothing, this kind of nothing. And we're gonna do this kind of nothing for a few minutes. And then we're gonna move on to the next kind of nothing, right? And the rest of you are like, you wanna burn Microsoft Excel to the ground because you hate that, and you want to live by the seat of your pants, right? But either way, however you, however you come to your nothing-to-do time, regardless of who you are, it's nice when you don't have anything that must get done, even if you've scheduled it out. No plan that has to be enacted. And Paul's letter to the Galatians is primarily concerned with answering a question about God's plan to save sinners. Like, how does God save sinners? And the gloriously good news is that God's answer to that question isn't, I don't have a plan. I don't know. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> Praise God, he had a plan. And chapter 3 shows us God's plan to save sinners is and always has been by faith, not by works, that God promised Abraham, salvation and blessing, and God justified Abraham by faith in God's promise, 
not by any work Abraham did or would do. And the Mosaic law, then given 430 years after God's promise, didn't cancel that promise, but instead made the promised salvation clearly necessary, that our lawlessness had won as we had just sung. And so the law made it clear that we needed a savior because not only does the law prove we can't save ourselves, our failure to keep the law brings us under the law's curse. But Jesus Christ is the promised seed, the offspring, the savior who doesn't just bring salvation in life or make possible blessing and salvation, but he himself is salvation and blessing. And the law was given to drive us to him, the promised offspring and heir of Abraham's promise. And so then as we saw at the end of chapter 3 last Sunday, any and all whose faith alone is in Jesus alone are united to the Son of God. And being united to the Son makes them sons of God and heirs of promise. And so chapter 4 then begins with Paul rehearsing salvation history. I remember in high school, I had to give a speech, and I remember rehearsing that speech over and over, not because it was good, but because I didn't want to screw up in front of everybody. But I, I rehearsed it just over and over, and you could wake me up in the middle of the night, and I could give it to you, as groggy or as out of it as I would be. You rehearse things to get it down pat, to call it to mind when it's necessary. And if the history of God's people tells us anything, it reminds us how forgetful we are. And so Paul opens chapter 4, continuing to rehearse in verses 1 to 7 God's plan to save sinners. Namely, that we were once slaves, but the Savior made us sons. We were once slaves, but the Savior made us sons. And so those three S's are our three points this morning. Slaves Savior and sons. Slaves, Savior, and sons. So first, we were once slaves. Look at verses 1 and 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so verse 1 returns to a theme of chapter 3, that the law, rather than being God's way to salvation actually instead imprisoned Israel and was its guardian until Jesus came, which means the law wasn't meant to save. It was meant to drive them to the only one who could save. And when God saves them by faith in Jesus, the Spirit unites them to the Son of God, which makes them sons of God. And if they are sons, they are heirs of promise. And this is, again, inheritance language. It's not male-female language. It's not that it could be said of you if you are a female trusting in Jesus alone that you are a daughter of the king. That could be very well true. And it is maybe uh, other places in Scripture you could pick up that theme. We are sons and daughters of the king. What we're trying to say in Galatians is you don't want to be a daughter because daughters don't get the inheritance. And actually, rather than being chauvinistic, this is revolutionary because this makes us, male or female, sons, inheritance gainers in Jesus Christ. 
So this is inheritance language. And verse 1 in chapter 4 picks up that inheritance language, saying that there's a time when an heir is really no better than a household slave. And we should note that slavery here isn't the horrific chattel slavery of the United States. And that doesn't make it right. And it doesn't make the kind of slavery in Paul's day right either. But you could choose to sell yourself into service. And sometimes a person's only choice was to do so to pay off debts. But Paul isn't interested in endorsing slavery. And neither anywhere in the New Testament does he promote its upheaval. But he uses the slavery uh, structure to help the Galatians understand salvation history. That there's a time when an heir of a fortune is really no different than a household servant. Now, of course, Paul is being uh, hyperbolic. He's using hyperbole here. Of course, a five-year-old billionaire heir has more rights and privileges than a common household servant. Okay, so he's not saying they are one-to-one. What he is trying to say is the point is the five-year-old doesn't possess the inheritance. He can't spend it. He can't manage it. He's not in control of it. And so he is really no different than a slave. He might have it coming, but he's got nothing at the moment. He might be the owner of everything, but he also really isn't because there's guardians and managers set over him. Right? This, is, this, this reminded me of the joke that if aliens ever came to Earth and saw someone walking their dog, who would they think was actually in charge? Right? The dog, not the human, because the dog's really in charge, and we're cleaning up after it, and we're trying to make sure that dog's life's happy, and who's, who's really serving who? Right? That's the point. When you look at a five-year-old under a manager, you would think, well, that's not the owner of anything. He's getting bossed around. He doesn't have any control. He, he, doesn't, he might be something, but we can't actually know because he's actually not the owner. He's being supervised. He has no real freedom, in other words. He's the heir, but he's taking orders. So in that case, he is really no different than the household servant staff. But the time this goes on is limited. The heir will grow up. And there comes a day when the father sets him free from this, and he gains it all. And he will be free from the guardianship he's under. And so verses 1 and 2 refer to Israel's slavery under the law. And then verse 3 then shows the Gentiles, though they didn't have the law, they too were once slaves. Look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul brings all Jews and Gentiles, all people, in verse 3, under the same category of slaves. Israel was enslaved before Jesus arrived under the law. And so were the Gentiles. Though they weren't enslaved under the law, they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, Paul says. And when Paul uses this phrase, again here, we'll see it next Sunday in verses 8 to 11, and he uses it in the letter to the Colossians as well, he always uses it to point to pagan religious rituals. Pagan religious rituals. The earthly elementary principles of earth, water, air, and fire. And those were often associated with false gods and idol worship. And so one's relationship with those false gods and idols was a relationship based on performance and fear. So they're enslaved. 
in this way to these false elementary principles or false gods as pagan idol worship rituals in which performance and fear drove it all. So you do things to make the gods happy. You have to do this in the right order sometimes. You have to do that. And if you do this and that, then the gods will be happy with you and the rains will come and, you know, your fields will be blessed and you'll have, you know, your kids won't get, all these things will happen, but it's based on your performance. If you don't do all those things, the gods retaliate and punish. And so when Paul lumps both Jew and Gentiles together as slaves, he isn't saying the Mosaic law is idolatry. He's saying the category we're both in is the same. It highlights the fact that neither law-keeping nor pagan rituals can free people from their slavery to sin. They're enslaved. And it's not law-keeping that will give you freedom, nor any religious ritual that will give you freedom. Now, you got to remember what Paul is doing in this letter. The, the Judaizers are telling the Galatians that in order to be true sons of Abraham, to be true heirs, you must add to your faith in Jesus works of the law. And so what Paul is doing in these first couple verses of chapter 4 is showing that the Judaizers, in reality, are just exchanging one set of slavery chains for another set of slavery chains. Instead of slavery to the elementary principles of the world, which the Gentiles were in because they were pagan idol worshipers, the Judaizers aren't showing them the path to true freedom. They're actually enslaving them to law-keeping. Right? Instead of slavery to the elementary principles of the world, here's a slavery to justification by law-keeping. And what Paul is saying is God doesn't save sinners by exchanging one set of chains for another. God saves sinners by freeing them from the chains, by breaking the chains, and that humans are enslaved to sin in various ways. Yes, whether it's very religious ways or very false uh, idle pagan ways. Either way, humans have the propensity to self-justify. And self-justification is just another way of keeping ourselves enslaved. And since we are enslaved, we can't free ourselves. We must be set free. And that's our true nature outside of Jesus Christ. And Galatians has been telling us this from the very beginning. In chapter 1, Paul says, uh, talks about our enslavement as being living in the present evil age, that Jesus came to release us, to set us free from this present evil age. We are in bondage and sin. We're under a curse. We're under guardianship. We live in a world dominated by ethnic, social, and gender division. So throughout the letter so far, Paul has been hammering home that we are, outside of Jesus, enslaved. We're dead in sin. We're living according to the ways of this evil age and the evil one who rules it so that we are truly by nature children of God's wrath because we freely live out the passions of our flesh. We follow. We are enslaved to our flesh. And the reason why we have to rehearse this, and the reason why Paul continues to rehearse the bad news part of the good news, is that the good news of the gospel can only grow in its goodness if we never forget 
the bad news part. If we never forget our true state and what it really was, we were in bondage, enslaved, in chains. We were slaves. And it's not just that we had to figure a few things out so that we could pick the lock and let us go, but we were in bondage without hope and without God. And so the glory of the good news will grow when you remember the chains that once had a hold on you. And if you can think back to that time, that you remember those chains, and that you were lost and dead and without hope and without God, Think back to that moment. And instead of hearing God say, I don't have a plan. See how this one works out. He says, I'm going to send forth my son. So secondly, the Savior. We were once slaves, but God sent the Savior. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. I have two points under this second point. God's gracious initiative and the Savior's gracious redemption. I'm going to say those again as we go, so if you're a note taker, don't worry. I understand that I'm freaking you out by just moving on, but I'm going to, you're going to hear them again. Two points. God's gracious initiative and the Savior's gracious redemption. And it starts with seeing my two favorite words in the Bible. If I wrote the ESV, I would have put them together. But God, when the fullness of time had come, sent forth his Son. It is his gracious initiative and his gracious initiative alone that we can be saved from our slavery. And that's why chapter 3 says God's plan was for Scripture to imprison everything under sin. It wasn't just that the law imprisoned some. The Scriptures imprisoned all people everywhere under sin, but it was only for a time. And when that moment came, God sent his Son. In uh, 2017, Becky and I uh, went to Boston for our 15th anniversary, uh, and we did it over the 4th of July um, because we wanted to spend the 4th of July in Boston, even though our anniversary is in June. But we got up Airbnb with a rooftop deck so we could watch the fireworks because I also didn't want to brave a million-person crowd. And so we confirmed with the owner several times that we'd be able to see the fireworks from their rooftop, and he confirmed that they had watched them many times on the roof. So after walking the Freedom Trail in humid Boston all day long, uh, I had never, ever felt more American than I was in that moment, right? We are patriotic, high-fiving people, USA. We get onto our roof. We see everyone else around us on their roofs as well, settling in to enjoy the show, right? And it's getting dark, and then all of a sudden you hear that thum thum in the back, you're like in the distance. You're like, the first one just got launched. And the sky lit up, but I didn't see the firework explode. And then about three seconds later, right behind the tallest skyscraper in the skyline, you see the last fizzling embers on its edges. And I was like, nah, so that can't be. That's just the test. That's the test one. That's not the kickoff, right? They wouldn't do that to us. But no, I just kept hearing the fireworks launching and boom, exploding. And you just couldn't see any of it. It was behind every one of the buildings in the skyline. And we weren't going to see the fireworks. When we had planned it for months, it unraveled right before our eyes. Because the city that year 
was the first time they moved the launching barges up the river <laughs> so that they could accommodate a million people who didn't have rooftops. But anyways, I hate Boston. No, I don't hate Boston anymore, but <laughs> stupid Boston. Right? The point is that we, we did everything we could. We, we planned it all out. We confirmed our plans. We had a plan. <laughs> but what good is a plan if you can't actually have the power to carry it out. And so praise God, he didn't just have a plan. God can't be stopped in carrying it out. This is a past tense verb. God sent. It's a fact, his son. And we see the glory of God's loving, gracious initiative to enact his plan to save sinners as he sent his son when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. Not when we realized we were enslaved to sin and death and cried out to God to help us. Not when I earned God's favor and finally figured out as much as I could my way out of my chains and worked myself out of slavery. No, God sent the Savior when the perfect time in his perfect plan arrived in spite of our rebellion against him. It was while we were still enemies and enslaved. But Jesus wasn't only sent. Verse 4 says Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. So God the Father sent God the Son, meaning Jesus existed before time, to enter time and space as a man. He had to become human, and he needed to be a man in order to be the second Adam, to be the head of our, this new race, this new creation in Jesus. The Savior could only save if he was truly human. And so Jesus was born of a woman. He was born of a woman. But he was also born under the law. The truly God, truly man Savior had to be born under the law because he had to save those imprisoned under the law. So you could think of it this way. Jesus had to be more than a mere man to save sinners. He had to be the perfect God-man to save sinners. So he was born under the law in order to keep God's law perfectly. So friends, without Jesus being born of a woman under the law, there would be no hope of salvation. We're wasting our time this morning if Jesus wasn't born of a woman under the law. But in God's gracious initiative, he sent when the fullness of his perfect time had come sent his son to be true God and true man. So he is the gracious initiator of our saving, of our salvation. And then secondly, notice the Savior's gracious redemption as verse 5 begins. So he, he, God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law. We're focused on that word, redeem. And redeem means purchase. It means to buy back. And it has this rich Old Testament history and it points back to Israel's slavery in Egypt. And the redemption price uh, for Israel to be set free from their slavery was either the death of a lamb, a pure one-year-old lamb without blemish, or the firstborn son of any house that didn't sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts. And so as the angel of the Lord went through Egypt that night, the firstborn son in the houses where there, where there was no blood died. 
And the first Passover lambs that did die that night and whose blood was put on the doorpost point to the fullness of time, that there's coming a day when the true Passover lamb and God's only firstborn son, the son, the eternally only begotten son, Jesus Christ would redeem sinners from their slavery to sin and death with his very own blood. And only by being truly born human and being born under the law and perfectly keeping the law, could Jesus buy back, could he redeem with his very own blood those under the law's curse? So we praise God for the Son who is graciously sent and graciously redeems. And friends, God sent his Son to fully accomplish and to fully be our salvation. We talk about uh, God's salvation being all of grace from beginning to end. And we see that here in Galatians 4, because God sent forth his son. God sent God to, for God to accomplish our salvation by God the Spirit uniting us then to the son by faith to make us sons and heirs. It's all of God. God didn't send the law to some for them to keep. <laughs> That's not why the law was sent. God sent his son because you can't save yourself. There's nothing we could do. God had to do it. And so we look to Jesus alone. For Jesus alone saved sinners from their slavery. But we're not just set free from our slavery by the Savior. There's something even better than just being redeemed. So thirdly and finally, the Savior turns slaves into sons. The Savior turns slaves into sons. Look at verse 5. To redeem those under, or to redeem those who were under the law, so that, it's that purpose clause. Why did God send forth his son, born of a woman, born of, under the law? To redeem those who were under the law, so that, purpose, we might receive adoption as sons. You know, the more I read Galatians, uh, the more I think verse 5 is one of the most important verses uh, for Christians in our time. Uh, and what I mean by that is, think of it this way. What's the first thing that pops into your mind when you hear the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? For our sins. It's probably, for people in our tradition, the quickest answer that comes. And that's not wrong, but it also isn't right. I mean, verse 5 tells us the purpose clause, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Yes, we're redeemed, we're brought back, we're taken out of sin. Why? So that there's a purpose. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for our sins. That's only half right. That's only half true. And far too often, it seems our half answer is why many seemingly only experience half the joy and vibrancy that the life in Jesus offers. In fact, maybe the half answer is why so many seem to live the Christian life less from the freedom we have in Jesus 
and more from a religious, ritual-like, slavish drudgery. And we've been talking about this for the last several weeks, that, that the gospel actually changes everything. When you wake up in the morning, how do you relate to God? And I think functionally, functionally, we have this slave still in here. The old man is still in there. And we think, I got to do this. I got to say my prayers. I got to read my Bible. I got to do the right things. And I got to do this. And I got to do that. And if I screw up, I got to do a little bit more. And, you know, as long as I stay on the right side of these things, then the Lord will bless me. Now, we might not actually say that. And I think we might not actually believe it. But functionally, how often do we wrestle with that in our hearts? And so that's what I mean, that many of us with this half answer that the reason why Jesus died on the cross was to save us from sin is why so many of us seem to struggle to live out the freedom we have in Jesus rather than, less than, living out that freedom and more from this slavery, kind of religious drudgery that too often we live our week less as sons and more like slaves. And so as I tried to work this out in my own life this week, I wouldn't stand up here and be a total hypocrite, and I say total because none of us are perfect, but try to be less of a hypocrite on Sunday morning than I was on Tuesday, I was helped by changing one letter, one letter, an I to an O. I was in sin, I, but the Savior has made me a son, an O. From sin, which is who we are by nature, and I, now a son, an O. And we can't leave out the bad news part of the gospel. We can't. We must remember that we were dead in sin, I, and children of wrath. But God sent his son, not just to save us, not just to redeem us from sin, but also to adopt him as sons. I'm a son, an I to an O. That God changes the letter of who we really are by faith in Jesus alone. From sin, I to son. And brothers and sisters, we're not just saved from sin, as glorious as that is. It's only half of it. We're saved from sin, and we're also saved to sonship. And we believe salvation is all of God from beginning to end. And our receiving adoption as God's sons is a vital part of that. That God's plan wasn't just to release us from slavery and then say, hope I see you on the last day. Try not to screw it up. Maybe you'll get there. Maybe you won't. I don't know. We'll just see what happens. Who wants that? I don't. I want that on a Saturday with, with Becky. We're just, let's just see what happens. Don't worry about the kids. They're fine. We'll just see what the, you know. But I don't want that when it comes to God and my salvation from sin. Now, he didn't just release us from slavery just to hope that you can figure out the rest on it all. No, he brought you all the way home in Jesus and made you his son. And when we live as if God's plan is just to save from sin, then there's this dangerous disconnect between God's saving grace and his sustaining grace in our daily lives that should not exist. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are sons. 
And that's what verse 6 is getting at. We have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son in us, because we're sons, crying out, Abba, Father, to the one who we were running from, who we rebelled against, who we only deserve his wrath. We can now cry out, Abba, Father. Remember Jesus' parable of the prodigal son? And he gets his inheritance, demands it, and then he goes off and squanders everything that the father gives him. And he's sitting in a pigsty going, man, even, even the servants are treated better at my, son's, or at my father's home. So he starts heading home, but while he's still yet a long way off, the father sees him because the father's waiting, calling him home. And the father runs to him, and as stinky as that son is, throws his arms around him, showers him with love, telling him we're going to do all these things for him, my son's home. But the son can't see that love and grace and mercy because all he sees is sin. He's got that eye still dominating his view. And so do you remember what he says when the father is showing him all this love and mercy? He says, I've sinned. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And what I'm trying to say is I think if you lack the joy that we can see in Galatians, maybe it's because your first instinct to the father who is like this father and the prodigal son, your first instinct is to say, I'm not worthy. Just make me a slave. But what does the father then do? It's like, enough of that. You're my son. And he makes him a full son. Even though the son can't see a way back to sonship and only slavery, the father won't have any of that. And so it's okay to say, I have sinned, but you can't stop there. Remember that by faith, you're not just redeemed from sin, you've been adopted as a son. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, God receives us as sons and loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved only begotten. There are no distinctions of affection in the divine family. We are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. I should probably just stop preaching, but I'm not going to. <laughs> because you could... You could just, that, you could spend all day with just that last sentence. We are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. You spend all afternoon with that last sentence and you would never get beyond it. And actually, this is why heaven won't be boring. Because you're going to spend all eternity plumbing the depths of this kind of love and you will never scratch the bottom of it. I mean, more and more. You will, we will just bask in the eternal love of this Father who made slaves through the Savior, his sons. And the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to check some boxes off in order to get it. God's not waiting for you to finally get your junk together so that you can become a son. It's wow. While we're on the road home, while we know we're sinners, while we know, while, no, makes us sons, all by grace alone. Because God didn't have to save any sinners. He didn't have to. 
In fact, what we deserved was to not be. Yet God planned to save a people for the glory of his name from before the foundation of the world. And God didn't have to adopt rebellious slaves and make them his sons. He could have just set us free and then made us second-class citizens, heavenly, heavenly servants, just like the angels. But he's made us more than that. He's brought us home and made us his sons just because he freely and lovingly chose to. <laughs> when all we deserved was to be left in our chains, God sent his only son, not only to save us from our enslavement, but also to bring many sons to glory through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that's all ours by faith alone in Jesus alone. And that's why verse 7 uh, can be true of you. By faith alone in the son Jesus alone. What verse 7 says can be true of you. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I mean, through God's sovereign and free grace alone. By faith alone in Jesus alone. Those who were once slaves are now by faith in the Savior made sons. And sonship, sonship, is how you destroy the disconnect between God's saving grace and his daily sustaining grace. That every morning and all day long, what's true of Jesus is true of me, all by grace, through faith. We're going to sing this song in just a moment. But this is how we can destroy that disconnect. I once was lost in darkest night. There's that sin. I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. We are not worthy. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cross, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And that's where we beheld God's love display. Jesus suffered in our place. You bore the wrath deserved for me. And here's the connection, right? Now, all I know is do better. Don't screw it up again. Here's some boxes. Take two of these each day and you're going to be okay. No, now, I, now all I know is grace. I mean, can you sing that? Can you truly sing that all week long? Can you truly sing that even when you feel like the prodigal son, that you've made a mess of it? I have sinned? Yes. Because now I know that that I can be turned to an O in Jesus, and that's mine by grace through faith. And that grace that makes slaves sons is working right now to one day bring us fully home to eternal glory. And so praise God for sending forth the Savior that brought slaves home as sons. Let's pray. What more can we say? Words can't express, Father, 
the depth of our gratitude when we behold the glory of your grace in Jesus to us. And yet you long for us to live in this joy, to swim in it, to bank on it, to revel in it, to glory in it, that it be on our lips all day long, the joy that we have, being once a slave, but now a son. And now we get to celebrate a picture of it. And we don't deserve a seat at this table. And yet, here we are, because of Jesus. You've brought us all the way home and given us a seat at your table as sons. And so in these moments, as we reflect on your grace and mercy in the Savior you sent, pray also that you would encourage us and that you would build our faith and that one day soon you would make this table the table. We long for that day when we see you face to face. And until then, give us the grace to wait and to continue hoping in Christ alone for the glory of your name we pray. Amen.